I'm glad you're here. Um, as Abby said, my name is Ben Peters. Uh, I am privileged to be able to serve as one of the pastors here. So if I have not met you, I would love to meet you. I'll be up here uh, after the sermon and um, hopefully warmer. Um, so that's the last of it. I'm not going to name it. Let's just pretend that it's not, okay? Um, but if you have been with us, you know that we have been in the series of Genesis for 10 months. 10 months. And I was thinking about this. Um, about seven months ago, I remember meeting a, a, a newer family, and she, she was just like, we were just having a conversation. I was getting to know them, um, asking a couple questions, and then she asked the question, how long are we going to be in Genesis? <laughs> I, I kind of I laughed. Um, and I started to like process through, why is she asking how long we're going to be in Genesis? And when I told her like a, another seven months, um, it wasn't a face of excitement. Okay, let me just name that. That was not the face uh, that she gave me in that. Um, but I started thinking, like, what is it that prompts that? Why, why is it that the, the book of Genesis, when we think of it, okay, it doesn't produce this excitement? Um, I'm guessing that when you first heard that we were going through the book of Genesis, you may have had a similar reaction. Um, you may have even, like, when you start thinking of the book of Genesis, you may even start thinking of objects, I was sitting there and I was talking with my oldest son, Joseph, and I was like, hey, when you think of the book of Genesis and objects, what do you start thinking of? And so we started rattling them off. A garden, a snake, an apple, um, an ark, an altar, a decorative coat that Joseph would wear. Like all of these objects we start thinking of. But I wonder if the reason that that woman why she didn't, wasn't so enthusiastic about going into the book of Genesis is because when we think of Genesis, we think of these objects, and they're not relatable. They don't seem to be relatable to you and I. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily um, have this serpent that's trying to tempt me, or I don't, I'm not being asked to build this ark because a catastrophic flood is coming, and I want to say Fallon and the boys, or I'm not being asked to sacrifice one of my sons on the altar. Or I'm not being, to, like, my, my father isn't making me this decorative coat, and then all of a sudden all my brothers are just disgusted with it and can't stand me because I'm the favorite. I certainly don't have that happening in my life. But I wonder if that's the thing, is when we start thinking of the book of Genesis we start realizing that it involves these objects, and these objects are not necessarily relatable to you and I. The fascinating thing about objects is that they're often the starting point for, re for relationships that you and I have, whether it's with our spouse, spouse our friendships, whether it's with our family. Like these objects that you start thinking of with your relationships um, those sometimes are reference points for you and I. And I was starting to think of, and here's a, here's a few of mine, okay? Um, back when I was growing up, 
there was this street light that was like right across the street. And the street light produced just enough light for me and Scott and Steve Jones and Brian Gorehouse and all of these friends that I would hang out with for us to play kick the can. And I remembered there being like this, this pine tree that was, this would be the light, here's the pine tree, and I would just be hiding right behind it because I was in the shadow. But that street light produced some childhood memories for me. It wasn't the object that was everything for our relationship, but it was the one that I think of as a reference point. Or, in Mr. Haskins' fifth grade class, I don't know if you guys ever received one of these. I know I did. The presidential patch. Have you ever received? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Thank you. Yes. I would do just enough push-ups and pull-ups with my buddy Pete right next to me, and I'm like, yeah, we're going to get that blue patch. If you got the red one, that was like a, that, that would have been a disappointment for me. But that right there was a moment where I met some of my best friends that I still hang out with today. But when I see that patch, that's what I think of. It's a reference point. Or brands, brands in Granville. I would convince my buddies to go there because that's where my future wife worked. You'd laugh, but it's true. And it wouldn't take a lot of convincing to go over there with me and my buddies in college. Like, that's what we did. Okay? But I would convince them. And when I drive past that, I don't think of those times with me and my buddies. I think, that's the spot where I met my wife. I wonder if you have similar ones. Like, could it be, like, the smell at your grandparents' house that when you, all of a sudden, when you smell that, it brings you right back because that's where you grew up? Or maybe it's a certain table that when you enter into a restaurant, you look over and that same table exists or that booth and you say, that's, that's where I had my first date. Or maybe it's a song that comes on the radio or you play on iTunes or whatever it is and it brings you right back to senior year in high school. There are these things, these reference points, these, these objects that we think of that all of a sudden when we hear them, when we see them, when we smell them, they bring us right back. And if you think of your friendships and you think of your spouse, those are often the objects that you think of. But here's the thing. I think when we, when we read the book of Genesis, when we think of the objects like the ark, like the altar, like the decorative coat, they aren't as unrelatable as you and I might think. They're not so unrelatable that we don't think of Genesis as this unrelatable story that just has to do with creation and it involves some of these objects, but not necessarily know how we connect it. Because over the past 10 months, my hope is that when you did, when you dove into the scripture, when you listened to the messages, when you did the study and you start to realize there's more to it. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into two of those objects. I want us to look at two of the focal points that are in the book of Genesis. And my hope is that if you didn't connect them before, <laughs> now is the time for you to connect them. Now is the time for you to look at those two objects and see how they are connected 
to God's message, not, then they don't just reveal enough like, uh, about us, about you and I, but they reveal God's character. So if you have your Bibles, where we're going to start out is going to be in Genesis 6. And if not, it'll be up on the screen too. But here, I'm going to introduce you to the first object. It's the ark. Okay? The ark is this large boat that was filled. It was, a, it was like a floating zoo that God asked Noah to go ahead and build to save he and his family and fill it with these animals And there's this catastrophic flood that's happening. That doesn't seem so relatable, does it? But I want to dive into this scripture and I want to connect how this ark doesn't just relate to you and I, but how it more importantly points to Jesus, which allows us to relate to it. So in verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings. The word regret is often this negative connotation. It has these negative undertones. And what it often means is that we just wish something didn't exist. It's a word that disconnects us from something that we wish didn't exist. We regret that that happened. But I think that's why it's so important for us to dive into the Hebrew word that was used for it, which is Nahum. Listen to what Nahum actually means. It means to be sorry and to have compassion and to suffer grief. I was sitting there watching The Chosen with my uh, 11-year-old. And he said, what's grief? Because there is this woman that's in this story and she had lost a baby and one of her friends said, you haven't grieved yet. And so Andrew says, what, is, what does it mean to grieve? And the best way I could, I struggled to like kind of answer it because it's so, it's this, this depth of this pain and this hurt. But the way that I would describe it is that you enter into this moment. You enter into not just passing through it, but you feel that that deep hurt, that deep pain, and you kind of sit in it with it and acknowledge it and name it and process through it. And that's what grieving looks like. So when we look at the word that God's using in here to regret something is this this deep sorrow that he has, this compassion that he has. It's to suffer grief. But notice what's not in the description. What's not in the description of verses 6 and 7 is there's no mention of God being angry There's no mention of it. In fact, you may not know this, but the first mention of God being angry in the Bible is in Exodus 4. It's when Moses, when he is asking Moses to obey him, and and Moses is coming up with excuse after excuse after excuse of not obeying God, and that's the first mention that we see God being angry. 
We may assume in this story when we think of the object of the ark that God is angry in this moment. We maybe even picture God being angry. And I want to go into this a bit deeper. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, anger is glaringly missing from this moment. In Genesis 4, when Cain brings this sacrifice to God and it's unacceptable to him, there is no anger mentioned in it. And later on in Genesis 4, when, when Cain kills Abel, we still don't see God being angry. There's no mention of anger in the story at that point. In fact, Adam and Eve and Cain, they act all in response as if God was angry. But the book of Genesis does not pick, depict an anger, angry God. And in this story, when everyone is evil all the time, notice those words that the author is using in this. Every inclination of the heart was only evil all the time. There was no goodness. There was nothing in there. And so not even then was God angry. He was sorrowful. He was grieving. He had compassion. His heart was deeply troubled. What if we've been reading this famous story of Noah and we think of this object of the ark with a bad filter? Believing that the primary emotion of God is anger and violence. If we read the story with that intent of the story through a lens of a narrative that is an angry God, a vengeful God, it shapes how we view God. It shapes how we serve others. It shapes how we love God and love others. And it certainly shapes when we think of the ark. It shapes how we view the ark being used. Instead, the ark is a vessel of salvation that God used to save Noah. Not because God was angry or vengeful, but because God was compassionate and heartbroken. And there simply was no other way. Every inclination of the heart was evil only all the time. And in the same way, when we start to look at this object and wonder how is it relevant, how do we connect it to Jesus? God sent his son Jesus in the same way for our salvation. God sent him not because he's angry or vengeful, but because he was deeply sorrowful and heartbroken and he understood there is no other way. Noah's story points to Jesus in Peter's words. It's written in Peter's first letter to this church and to this people who they're being persecuted nonstop. And so Peter writes this letter in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want to read verses 20 through 22 to you. Listen to how he connects Noah to Jesus. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes a baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into the heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and power and submission 
to him. The ark points to Jesus because God desires us to have a relationship with him that sin simply cannot take away. This quote from Tim Keller gets to this point with efficiency. He says, there is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon and cover. There is no sin that is a match for his grace. You might be wrestling with sin right now. We all are. If I'm being honest, I am. You are like, we are sinners. We understand that, and that's why God sent his son here. I was sitting across a table from a woman, and she was just, she was expressing what's happening in her family, in her family dynamics. And what she's naming is that she gets really angry quickly, like it is really quick for her. And she starts yelling at the kids, and she starts yelling at her spouse. And as we started processing through this, what I, what I quickly realized is she doesn't understand God as being a God of grace and mercy. She understands God is, I just kind of got to make sure that I don't do any bad things, because if I do, he's going to come down. And it's kind of like how we view the ark if we look at it through an angry or vengeful God. But when I see, when I listen to her, I asked her the question, I said, do you, do you know that God is a God of grace and mercy? Do you know that he loves you and that no matter what you do, he will never give up on a relationship with you? And she broke down. Like she didn't recognize God's character and love for her in that moment. And it broke my heart. Like I just wanted her to experience that because if she experiences God's grace and mercy, then she is going to extend that same grace and that same mercy to her family. I wonder how many of us are in that same boat as she's in. Understanding that Jesus died for us because of the love that God has for you and I. So let's move on to the next object, okay? So we see the altar, or we see the the ark, and we see how God uses that object to connect us to Jesus, and we see how now it becomes relatable, right? The next one is the altar, I'm not even going to go into a dissertation about this one. Because this one, let let me just start. I'm just going to start reading uh, the scripture. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Mount of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. I read that. Raise your hand if you can relate to that story. That's what I thought. There is not a person in here when you see the object of the altar, when you read this story, is one that you can relate to. I can't. Here's the, here's the fascinating part about this story, okay? Um, we say this often, Pastor Scott, Abby, we say this often. Context matters a ton when we read through the Bible. 
And I don't know if it matters as much in other stories as it matters in this. They're like, this is the top. <laughs> like, this ranks right at the very tippy top of why context matters. Because back then, when we read this story, child sacrifice was a common thing. People would worship pagan gods, and what they would say is, we need your most valuable sacrifice. And what's the most valuable sacrifice? It's your oldest son. It's the one that's going to help you with your land. It's your bloodline. There is no other sacrifice that is as important as your oldest son. So when we read this, we have to understand that this was a common thing back then. And Abraham hears this request, and he moves forward. You don't see Abraham argue. I'm I'm not saying that it was easy for Abraham. I imagine he was absolutely torn. But the thing that you don't read in here is that Abraham was not pushing back, was not fighting, was not arguing. He went ahead and started taking steps towards it. I started thinking about this, and I wondered, what's going to happen, like, in thousands of years from now, when they look back and they kind of look at our generations and they look at the things that were prominent in our culture, what are the things that they're going to look back and be like, I can't believe they did that. They allowed that. I mean, an example could be the clothes that I'm wearing, are, are they produced by the hands of children? in a third world country? Do they look back at that and say, I can't believe a pastor would, uh, would do that. Like that wrecks me as I start thinking about it through this context. And so when we see, hear this story, I think it's really important that we understand the context that comes with this. That child sacrifice was very prominent. Let's continue. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. This one gets me. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You know, when we read this story, um, Isaac is not a toddler, not an infant. He's well aware. When we read this, he's well aware of what's happening. He's connecting the dots. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. As they went on together, they reached the top of the mountain, and there lies the next object, the altar. And as Abraham was about to sacrifice his his son, his only son, whom he loved, who God promised to him. As he was about to sacrifice him, an angel of the Lord comes down and he says, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham's response in this moment is, here I am. Almost hoping that this happens. Almost wishing that, like, God If you can stop me, please. Because as soon as the angel says, Abraham, Abraham, it's like he stops and he says, here I am. I've been waiting for you to show up. And the angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its, by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That is a tough story. That's a tough biblical story. I imagine that when you would read this, I, when I would read this, before going through this book of Genesis 10 months ago, as I'm reading this, I would have some context that would be understood. But chapter 22 was hard. You may have even found yourself like going ahead and skipping through it. Like, I don't, want to, I don't want to enter into this one. This is just too unrelatable, too foreign. That object of the altar, I can't relate to it. But what does it reveal about God? What does it reveal about his character? What does it reveal about his love for us? Because if that was a common thing back then, child sacrifice, and God stops him, what is God saying to Abraham at that moment? He's saying, I'm not like them. I'm not like the gods that others worship. I will never ask you to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else in order to appease me, to give me an offering. I'm never going to ask you to do that. I love you too much, and I'm not going to enter into this child sacrifice that these people that are worshiping pagan gods enter into. I'm not going to do that. I'm not that kind of God. I wonder if we use it through that lens, if we see the altar from that lens of not not looking at it from a power-hungry and cruel God, but if we see the altar as an object that God makes it known at that moment, right at the beginning, that he's different. What does that do for your faith? What does that do for your view of God's character? Is it that not only is he not different, but early on, right away, he's pointing towards Jesus. Listen to the ways in the story that Abraham and his son Isaac point to Jesus. Right in verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love. What does that sound like? In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We see the connection that they are both the beloved sons of their father. One was pointing to the other that that's the sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice. You don't need to. That's not how this works. And as we continue, both Jesus and Isaac carry up the wood that would lead to their death. That were supposed to lead to the... In verse 6, we read that Abraham placed the wood on Isaac's back. In John 19, Jesus bearing his cross, carrying his cross, being whipped, being tortured, he carried the wood that would be used for his sacrifice. Both of these stories, God provides a sacrificial substitute, which Abraham says will be a ram that's caught in the thicket, right? In the New Testament authors, they refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. You start to see right at the beginning, the altar was, being pointing, was pointing right to Jesus. Not as an object of a vengeful and an angry and a cruel God, but it was... It was pointing to Jesus as grace and mercy. 
Genesis and Jesus both tell us the same thing. That while we live in a world that requires an altar, a sacrifice, an earning, a strategy to measure up or prove ourselves to others, this God's different. We don't have to worship at an altar of measurement according to other people's view of us. We don't have to measure up to what we think God needs in this moment. God already loves us. He already accepts us. He already wants a relationship with us. So what does the altar show us about God's character? I want you to listen to the words that Jesus uses when he starts talking about mercy and sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 9, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, I love this scene. Just picture this in your mind. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. The altar was a way of God showing us mercy and pointing us towards Jesus. And I see that and I think that is a good God. If you're wondering, how do we move beyond sacrifice, thinking that we have to measure up? How do we move beyond that to showing, to understanding God's mercy for us? I think we enter into it with relationships. It's not what we can get out of this world to keep measuring up, but it's to understand that God created a community for you and I in entering into those relationships, whether it is through an anchor group or a cultivate group or an MC, a missional community, whether it's in any of those things. We enter into it because we enter into a relationship offering grace and mercy and understanding. We don't need to measure up to what we think the bar is. We can enter into prayer requests. We can enter into just walking with someone that's having a really difficult time. These objects in the creation story have always pointed us to Jesus and revealed a God that shows us grace and mercy. This altar in the ark that we used to not be able to relate to, my hope is that you look at him now and you're like, I see that. I see God's character in that. I see how he's pointing to Jesus in these, in these objects. I want to have a, um, there's a fun little fact. I was talking with Andrew. He comes home from, from class, from science class, and he, says, and he gives me this fact. And I don't know if you guys knew, know this or not. It astounded me. So he says, hey, Dad, did you know that the water that's on the earth today is the same amount of water that has been there since creation. And I wanted to be like, there is no way that that's true. With the exception of volcanic, like, moisture that's going into the air, I looked it up, and it is true. That the water that, was ex- that, was, that existed back then during creation is the same amount of water that we have today. And I started thinking about that. As I was reading and studying for this message... I wondered what would it look like for us this week if we take a bottle of water wherever we go 
And when we take a drink, we understand that that is the same water that, was, that existed back in creation. Just like that's the same God in, in the Genesis story that we experience today. The same grace and the same mercy. And when we take that drink, we remind ourselves of a God, of a loving God, of a good Father that offers us grace and mercy. Maybe you're in, a, in an argument with somebody and you take a drink of water and you remind yourself of the grace and mercy. Maybe it's when you're feeling unworthy. You come home from school or you come home from your job and you are just wrecked. Whereas then you take a drink of water and you remind yourself of the grace and mercy that God has for you, the value he places on you. What if when you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to lean in to something that you've been leaning into, you take a drink of water and you say, no, God, give me the strength because I know you're a good God that gives me and provides for me in those times. By taking that drink, you recognize the grace and the mercy that God has for you and I. And to wrap up, to conclude, we're running out of time. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad we're doing this today. I'm glad that we're going to enter into a time of sacrament with communion. Because since the beginning of God's creation, he's been pointing us to his son and how much he loves us. And there's a significance to what we're about to enter into. There's a significance to it because this morning we have the opportunity to publicly acknowledge what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. To enter into a relationship with him. So even little things like taking the bread and dipping them in the juice are big things because it brings us back to who God is. Right right since Genesis. All the way to us recognizing what Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to give you a couple instructions. We have four tables. Back there is a gluten-free one, okay? And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to invite you. It gets kind of messy. We have a lot of people here today. But just pick one, one of these lines and understand that you are doing this in communion with people that God loves. And when you take the elements, you simply take the bread, and you dip it in the juice, and then you'll return to your seat. And I want to go through Paul's words and what he writes in 1 Corinthians. This is a moment where Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he understands what's, what's about to come. And he understands so much so that he invites his community to share in this moment. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink from this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Will you please pray with me? Gracious God, I thank you for this morning.
God, I'm thinking about those that are walking into this gym, that walked into this gym and listened to this message. And God, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit worked in a way that they heard something that they needed to hear today. A message of grace, a message of mercy, a message of love that you have for them that they didn't know existed. God, I pray that as we move forward, as we take in what you're trying to teach us, God, we ask the questions of God, what are you asking of us and how are we going to respond? What does that look like for you and I? God, I thank you for that challenge. I thank you for that invitation. And God, I just pray that as we move forward, we remind ourselves of the kind of God that you are. And we love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Make